Hey, welcome back to another World Audiobooks. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas, and we're just really able to celebrate the, the real meaning behind Christmas, and just Jesus coming to Earth. It's just such a wonderful time of year, and I hope you're already into a wonderful new year. Man, this holiday season has been crazy, but I'm super excited to be getting back in to The Hound of the Baskervilles. I hope you guys enjoyed the Christmas Carol audio drama. I, yeah, I know I've gone on and on about it, so I won't uh, beguile you again with all my um, ravings about it, but it was so much fun. I hope you enjoyed it. If you didn't listen to it, I highly recommend that you go back and check it out. Uh, you can get the full version now, and uh, again, all proceeds uh, from that go to uh, supporting Operation Christmas Child. And even though Christmas is over, they are already ramping up for the next Christmas season. So get out there and support them. Uh, send me a um, copy of your receipt to anotherworldaudiobooks at gmail.com, and I will get you a free copy of the full version of the Christmas Carol audio drama. And uh, yeah, thank you to all the new listeners. It is amazing to see the podcast growing. And also a huge thank you to our sponsors. We got uh, Aaron and Ediosa, Mike and Corky. Thank you so much, each and John as well. Don't forget John uh, for supporting this podcast. It just means so much to me to see you guys um, actually supporting the podcast and uh, hope you are enjoying it. If you want to become a supporter of the podcast, go to anchor.fm slash anotherworldaudiobooks and just click on support this podcast. It helps so much. This is a labor of love and I can't thank you enough for contributing to help uh, me create more episodes. So let's do this thing. Now without further ado, I give you chapter 13 of the Half of the Baskervilles. Chapter 13 Fixing the Nets Sir Henry was more pleased than surprised to see Sherlock Holmes, for he had, for some days, been expecting that recent events would bring him down from London. He did raise his eyebrows, however, when he found that my friend had neither any luggage nor any explanation for its absence. Between us, we soon supplied his wants, and then over a belated supper, we explained to the baronet as much of our experience as it seemed desirable that he should know. But first, I had the unpleasant duty of breaking the news to Barrymore and his wife. To him, it may have been an unmitigated relief, but she wept bitterly in her apron. To all the world he was the man of violence, half animal and half demon, but to her he always remained the little willful boy of her own girlhood, the child who had clung to her hand. Evil indeed is the man who has not one woman to mourn him. "'I've been moping in the house all day since Watson went off in the morning,' said the baronet. "'I guess I should have some credit, for I have kept my promise.' If I hadn't sworn not to go about alone, I might have had a more lively evening, for I had a message from Stapleton asking me over there. I have no doubt that you would have had a more lively evening, said Holmes dryly. By the way, I don't suppose you appreciate that we have been mourning over you as having broken your neck? Sir Henry opened his eyes. How was that? This poor wretch was dressed in your clothes. I fear your servant, who gave them to him, may get into trouble with the police. That is unlikely. There was no mark on any of them, as far as I know. That's lucky for him. In fact, it's lucky for all of you, since you are all on the wrong side of the law in this matter. I am not sure that, as a conscientious detective, my first duty is not to arrest the whole household. Watson's reports are most incriminating documents. But how about the case? asked the baronet. "'Have you made anything out of the tangle? I don't know that Watson and I are much the wiser since we came down.' 
I think that I shall be in a position to make the situation rather more clear to you before long. It has been an exceedingly difficult and most complicated business. There are several points upon which we still want light, but it is coming all the same. We've had one experience, as Watson has no doubt told you. We heard the hound on the moor, so I can swear that it is not all empty superstition. I had something to do with dogs when I was out west, and I know one when I hear one. If you can muzzle that one and put him on a chain, I'll be ready to swear you are the greatest detective of all time. I think I will muzzle him and chain him all right if you will give me your help. Whatever you tell me to do, I will do. Very good. And I will ask you also to do it blindly, without always asking the reason. Just as you like. If you will do this, I think the chances are that our little problem will soon be solved. I have no doubt he stopped suddenly and stared fixedly up over my head into the air. The lamp beat upon his face, and so intent was it, and so still, that it might have been that of a clear-cut classical statue, a personification of alertness and expectation. What is it? we both cried. I could see, as he looked down, that he was repressing some internal emotion. His features were still composed, but his eyes shone with amused exultation. Excuse the admiration of a connoisseur, said he, as he waved his hand towards the line of portraits which covered the opposite wall. Watson won't allow that I know anything of art, but that is mere jealousy because our views upon the subject differ. Now these are a really fine series of portraits. Well, I'm glad to hear you say so, said Sir Henry, glancing with some surprise at my friend. I don't pretend to know much about these things, and I'd be a better judge of a horse or a steer than of a picture. I didn't know that you found time for such things. I know what is good when I see it, and I see it now. That's a Kneller. That's a Kneller, I'll swear. That lady in the blue silk over yonder, and the stout gentleman with the wig ought to be a Reynolds. They are all family portraits, I presume? Every one. Do you know the names? Barrymore has been coaching me in them, and I think I can say my lessons fairly well. Who is the gentleman with the telescope? That is uh, Rear Admiral Baskerville, who served under Rodney in the West Indies. The man with the blue coat and the roll of paper is Sir William Baskerville, who was chairman of committees of the House of Commons under Pitt. And this cavalier opposite to me? The one with the black velvet and the lace? Ah, you have a right to know about him. That is the cause of all the mischief. The wicked Hugo, who started the Hound of the Baskervilles. We're not likely to forget him. I gazed with interest and some surprise upon the portrait. Dear me, said Holmes. He seems a quiet, meek-mannered man enough, but I dare say that there was a lurking devil in his eyes. I had pictured him as a more robust and ruffianly person. There's no doubt about the authenticity, for the name and the date, 1647, are on the back of the canvas. Holmes said little more, but the picture of the old roisterer seemed to have a fascination for him, and his eyes were continually fixed upon it during supper. It was not until later, when Sir Henry had gone to his room, that I was able to follow the trend of his thoughts. He led me back into the banqueting hall, his bedroom candle in his hand, and he held it up against the time-stained portrait on the wall. Do you see anything there? I looked at the broad-plumed hat, the curling love-locks, the white-lace collar, and the straight, severe face which was framed between them. 
It was not a brutal countenance, but it was prim, hard, and stern, with a firm-set, thin-lipped mouth and a cold, intolerant eye. Is it like anyone you know? There is something of Sir Henry about the jaw. Just a suggestion, perhaps. But wait an instant. He stood upon a chair, and holding up the light in his left hand, he curved his right arm over the broad hat and round the long ringlets. Good heavens! I cried in amazement. The face of Stapleton had sprung out of the canvas. Ha! Huh, you see it now. My eyes have been trained to examine faces, and not their trimmings. It is the first quality of a criminal investigator that he should see through a disguise. But this is marvellous. It might be his portrait. Yes, it is an interesting instance of a throwback, which appears to be both physical and spiritual. A study of family portraits is enough to convert a man to the doctrine of reincarnation. The fellow is a Baskerville. That is evident. With designs upon the succession? Exactly. This chance of the picture has supplied us with one of our most obvious missing links. We have him, Watson. We have him. And I dare swear that before tomorrow night he will be fluttering in our net as helpless as one of his own butterflies. A pin, a cork, and a card, and we add him to the Baker Street collection. He burst into one of his rare fits of laughter as he turned away from the picture. I have not heard him laugh often, and it has always boded ill to somebody. I was up betimes in the morning, but Holmes was afoot earlier still, for I saw him as I dressed, coming up the drive. Yes, we should have a full day today, he remarked, and he rubbed his hands with a joy of action. The nets are all in place, and the drag is about to begin. We'll know before the day is out whether we have caught our big, lean-jawed pike, or whether he has got through the meshes. Have you been on the moor already? I have sent a report from Grimpen to Princeton as to the death of Selden. I think I can promise that none of you will be troubled in the matter. And I have also communicated with my faithful Cartwright, who would certainly have pined away at the door of my hut, as a dog does at his master's grave, if I had not set his mind at rest about my safety. What is the next move? To see Sir Henry. Ah, here he is. "'Good morning, Holmes,' said the baronet. "'You look like a general who is planning a battle with his chief of the staff.' "'That is the exact situation. Watson was asking for orders.' "'And so do I.' "'Very good. You are engaged, as I understand, to dine with our friends, the Stapletons, tonight.' "'I hope that you will come also. They are very hospitable people, and I am sure that they would be very glad to see you.' "'I fear that Watson and I must go to London.' To London? Yes, I think that we should be more useful there at the present juncture. The baronet's face perceptibly lengthened. I hoped that you were going to see me through this business. The hall and the moor are not very pleasant places when one is alone. My dear fellow, you must trust me implicitly and do exactly what I tell you. You can tell your friends that we should have been happy to have come with you, but that urgent business required us to be in town. We hope very soon to return to Devonshire. Will you remember to give them that message? If you insist upon it. There is no alternative, I assure you. I saw by the baronet's clouded brow that he was deeply hurt by what he regarded as our desertion. When do you desire to go? He asked coldly. Immediately after breakfast. 
We will drive in to Combe Tracy, but Watson will leave his things as a pledge that he will come back to you. Watson, you will send a note to Stapleton, and tell him that you regret that you cannot come. I have a good mind to go to London with you, said the baronet. Why should I stay here alone? Because it is your post of duty. Because you gave me your word that you would do as you were told, and I tell you to stay. All right, then. I'll stay. One more direction. I wish you to drive to Merripit House. Send back your trap, however, and let them know that you intend to walk home. To walk? Across the moor? Yes. But that's the very thing which you have so often cautioned me not to do. This time you may do it with safety. If I had not every confidence in your nerve and courage, I would not suggest it. But it is essential that you should do it. Then I will do it. And as you value your life, do not go across the moor in any direction, save along the straight path which leads from Merripit House to the Grimpen Road, and is your natural way home. I will do just as you say. Very good. I should be glad to get away as soon after breakfast as possible, so as to reach London in the afternoon. I was much astounded by this programme, though I remembered that Holmes had said to Stapleton on the night before that his visit would terminate next day. It had not crossed my mind, however, that he would wish me to go with him, nor could I understand how we could both be absent at a moment which he himself declared to be critical. There was nothing for it, however, but implicit obedience, so we bade good-bye to our rueful friend, and a couple of hours afterwards we were at the station of Combe Tracy, and had dispatched the trap upon its return journey. A small boy was waiting upon the platform. "'Any orders, sir?' "'You will take this train to town, Cartwright. The moment you arrive, you will send a wire to Sir Henry Baskerville, in my name, to say that if he finds the pocket-book which I have dropped, he is to send it by registered post to Baker Street.' "'Yes, sir.' and ask at the station office if there is a message for me. The boy returned with a telegram, which Holmes handed to me. It ran, Wire received, coming down with unsigned warrant. Arrive 5.40, Lestrade. That is an answer to mine of this morning. He is the best of the professionals, I think, and we may need his assistance. Now, Watson, I think that we cannot employ our time better than by calling upon your acquaintance, Mrs. Laura Lyons. His plan of campaign was beginning to be evident. He would use the baronet in order to convince the Stapletons that we were really gone, while we should actually return at the instant when we were likely to be needed. That telegram from London, if mentioned by Sir Henry to the Stapletons, must remove the last suspicions from their minds. Already I seemed to see our nets drawing closer round that lean-jawed pike. Mrs. Laura Lyons was in her office, and Sherlock Holmes opened his interview with a frankness and directness which considerably amazed her. "'I'm investigating the circumstances which attended the death of the late Sir Charles Baskerville,' said he. "'My friend here, Dr. Watson, has informed me of what you have communicated, and also of what you have withheld in connection with that matter.' "'What I have withheld?' she asked defiantly. "'You have confessed that you asked Sir Charles to be at the gate at ten o'clock.' We know that that was the place and hour of his death. You have withheld what the connection is between these events. There is no connection. In that case, the coincidence must indeed be an extraordinary one. But I think that we shall succeed in establishing a connection after all. I wish to be perfectly frank with you, Mrs. Lyons. We regard this case as one of murder, 
and the evidence may implicate not only your friend Mr. Stapleton, but his wife as well. The lady sprang from her chair. His wife? she cried. The fact is no longer a secret. The person who has passed for his sister is really his wife. Mrs. Lyons had resumed her seat. Her hands were grasping the arms of her chair, and I saw that the pink nails had turned white with the pressure of her grip. His wife, she said again. His wife! He is not a married man! Sherlock Holmes shrugged his shoulders. Prove it to me, and if you can do so! The fierce flash of her eyes said more than any words. I have come prepared to do so, said Holmes, drawing several papers from his pockets. Here is a photograph of the couple taken in York four years ago. It is endorsed Mr. and Mrs. Vanderleer, but you will have no difficulty in recognizing him, and her also, if you know her by sight. Here are three written descriptions by trustworthy witnesses of Mr. and Mrs. Vanderleer, who at that time kept St. Oliver's private school. Read them, and see if you can doubt the identity of these people. She glanced at them, and then looked up at us with the set, rigid face of a desperate woman. Mr. Holmes, she said, this man had offered me marriage on condition that I could get a divorce from my husband. He has lied to me, the villain, in every conceivable way. Not one word of truth has he ever told me. And why? Why? I imagine that all was for my own sake. But now I see that I was never anything but a tool in his hands. Why should I preserve faith with him, who never kept any with me? Why should I try to shield him from the consequences of his own wicked acts? Ask me what you like, and there is nothing which I shall hold back. One thing I swear to you, and that is that, when I wrote the letter, I never dreamed of any harm to the old gentleman, who had been my kindest friend. I entirely believe you, madame, said Sherlock Holmes. The recital of these events must be very painful to you, and perhaps it will make it easier if I tell you what occurred, and you can check me if I make any material mistake. The sending of this letter was suggested to you by Stapleton? He dictated it. I presume that the reason he gave you was that you would receive help from Sir Charles for the legal expenses connected with your divorce. Exactly. And then, after you had sent the letter, he dissuaded you from keeping the appointment. He told me that it would hurt his self-respect that any other man should find the money for such an object, and that, though he was a poor man himself, he would devote his last penny to removing the obstacles which divided us. He appears to be a very consistent character. And then you heard nothing until you read the reports of the death in the paper? No. And he made you swear to say nothing about your appointment with Sir Charles? He did. He said that the death was a very mysterious one, and that I should certainly be suspected if the facts came out. He frightened me into remaining silent. Quite so. But you had your suspicions? She hesitated and looked down. I knew him, she said. But if he had kept faith with me, I should always have done so with him. I think that, on the whole, you have had a fortunate escape, said Sherlock Holmes. You have had him in your power, and he knew it, and yet you are alive. You have been walking for some months very near to the edge of a precipice. We must wish you good morning now, Mrs. Lyons, and it is probable that you will very shortly hear from us again. Our case becomes rounded off, and difficulty after difficulty thins away in front of us.
said Holmes, as we stood waiting for the arrival of the express from town. I shall soon be in the position of being able to put into a single connected narrative one of the most singular and sensational crimes of modern times. Students of criminology will remember the analogous incidents of Gonno in Little Russia in the year 66, and, of course, there are the Anderson murders in North Carolina, but this case possesses some features which are entirely its own. Even now, we have no clear case against this very wily man. But I shall be very much surprised if it is not cleared up enough before we go to bed this night. The London Express came roaring into the station, and a small, wiry bulldog of a man had sprung from a first-class carriage. We all three shook hands, and I saw at once, from the reverential way in which Lestrade gazed at my companion, that he had learned a good deal since the days when they had first worked together. I could well remember the scorn which the theories of the reasoner used then to excite in the practical man. "'Anything good?' he asked. "'The biggest thing for years,' said Holmes. "'We have two hours before we need think of starting. I think we might employ it in getting some dinner.' And then, Lestrade, we will take the London fog out of your throat by giving you a breath of the pure night air of Dartmoor. Ever been there? Ah, uh, well, I don't suppose you will forget your first visit. We are approaching the final climax of the book. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks for sharing the podcast. That really is the biggest thing. I have looked all over the place at, you know, different options for promoting the podcast and growing the audience and maybe even doing advertising and stuff like that. But since this is kind of just a labor of love, I think the best way to approach this is definitely going to be just the organic way of doing it. So bringing other people into the podcast by listeners telling others about the podcast. So if you can help me out in that way, you know, if these free audiobooks are worth you uh, just talking to your, your friend or your neighbor or a spouse or a loved one, just telling them, hey, you know, if you like audiobooks, check out this podcast. There's got awesome free audiobooks and, well, I hope they're awesome, uh, but they got free audiobooks anyway, and a whole bunch of them, uh, over 160, we're coming up on 170, uh, we might actually be past 170 individual episodes of the podcast so uh yeah definitely just spread the word let other people know about it uh it means so much to me to um just have you guys help out in that way so definitely go check out the website anotherworldaudiobooks.com i am hoping to be adding stuff continually there so there will be just more um you know links to the social media and uh, links to support the podcast so go ahead and make sure to go there anotherworldaudiobooks.com you can follow us you can get in touch with us you can support us buying merch um i got some really cool t-shirts and stuff that you can buy through uh, Spreadshirt.com, uh, through our little um, uh, Another World Audiobook store there. So go ahead and check that out and uh, support the podcast. And I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks so much again for listening. And we will talk to you next week.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When I was in school, I absolutely hated writing. It wasn't until I was a bit older that I came to understand the power of words. If you're a business owner, you understand that power too. A business blog, when done right, can drive sales, increase revenue, and get you more customers. But as a business owner, you probably don't have the time to do all that writing. Plus, if you're not a copywriter by trade, you might feel like you're just kind of throwing words out there and they're not actually accomplishing anything. The good news is, there's a simple solution. Check it out. I call it the ultimate blog post checklist for businesses with online stores. This checklist will allow you to write better, more effective articles that convert readers into buyers. It's full of easy-to-follow examples to get your creativity flowing based on experience of nearly a million words written. And best of all, it's effective on any type of article in any industry or niche. I've successfully used this exact checklist on topics from pool table reviews to investment advice. Tired of spending tons of time writing stuff that doesn't convert? This checklist will change that by giving you highly effective blog posts and articles that transform readers into paying customers. Go to Invicta.Enterprises slash free checklist and start saving time and transforming your writing now. That's Invicta.Enterprises slash free checklist. 